from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Monday, the 31st of July, and I have an amazing collection of shows this week. Today, we have Chris Volk, three IPOs, and an Entrepreneur of the Year from Ernst & Young Award. You don't get any more prestigious than that. After that, Bob Muglia, president of Microsoft and CEO of Snowflake. Those are both X positions and author of a new book called Datapreneurs. Amazing guest today. On the next show, I guess Wednesday, we have the founder of Telzio, one of the most impressive telecoms out there. It's a unicorn and super moms, Jacqueline Toberoff. And then on Friday, we have a radio station owner. It's an amazing 40% profit margin business and one of the premier experts on growing your business overseas. So it's an amazing collection of guests this week and today and appreciate you being with us. And oh, wow. Next week, a guy with 20 companies sold and started just an infinite supply of great entrepreneurial stories and education to get you educated, motivated, and to make you want to get off the sofa, destroy the remote control, and get out there and make a million dollars. We're going to show you how to do it with no creativity and as little risk as possible. We're going to start in like 10 seconds. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us. I am very excited to welcome back to the show Christopher Volk. He was with us about a year ago. He is author of a very successful five-star rated book called The Value Equation, A Business Guide to Wealth Creation for Entrepreneurs, Leaders, and Investors. It is a great book that you must read. It has the basic, I've never really seen this anywhere else, a description of the six different levers that you can use to change your business's value, how to grow. It's impactful. Listen to that interview. Today, we're going to talk about some other things. He is an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year winner, which to me is the Academy Awards of Entrepreneurship. That's about as sexy as you can get. Chris, welcome back. How are you doing? Well, Jim, it's great to be here. And thanks for inviting me to come back a year later. So congratulations on the book. It's still selling very well and five-star rated. Uh, was it what you thought it would be being an author? Wow. Um, well, the, the, the answer is I'm really glad I did the book. So the writing a book is sort of a bucket list thing for any author. So anybody who's going to spend that kind of time and, and devotion to it, it's sort of a labor of love. Um, and, uh, and so I'm really glad I did it. I, Getting people to read a book is, is always uh, a challenge, so uh, I'd like to get more people to read this book. It's probably the only book that's written out there that tells people how wealth is created. And if you look at 
the Forbes 400, or if you look at the top 1% of Americans, most of them made their money in business. Uh, and, uh, and then the question is, well, how'd they do that? Well, I mean, this book will show you how to do it. And, uh, and then it's the only book out there that'll kind of peel that back for folks. And, uh, I'd like to see, frankly, a lot more people be able to count themselves in the 1%. And I'd like to have the 1% be, uh, you know, now the 2% or something like that. I'd like it to be the 5%. I'd, I'd like to see more people join the ranks. About 12% of Americans are millionaires. I'd like to see it be a lot more than that. Well, that is certainly what this show is trying to do as well. So uh, good to talk to you again. How did you get wealthy? Tell us a little bit about your career. Again, Academy Award winner from where I sit, uh, Ernst and Young. Such an incredible process going through that. I've been uh, at some of the award ceremonies and such. Tell us a little bit about your career. What sticks out? Well, I what sticks out. I started in in the town where you you are. I mean, I started in Atlanta, Georgia. I, I uh, did a night school degree at Georgia State University, which is where you've taught. Um, and uh, I worked for a bank. And banks are great places to start your career. If for anybody who's thinking about starting a career, because you get to see all kinds of different companies out there. You get to see how people make money and uh, and, and what things you might like to do and. Of course, you may like banking, you know? but I left banking and I went to work with a company that uh, was engaged in financial services, but sort of on the real estate side. And they were in, uh, in uh, Arizona. And what we would do is we would just buy real estate and rent it to people. And we would own chiefly fast food restaurants early on in the 80s when the fast food business was really growing. And we owned ultimately thousands of fast food restaurants, leased to thousands of restaurant franchisees. And um, one day I walked into the guy who was the CEO and founder of the company, and I just said, you know, we should just take this thing and put it on the New York Stock Exchange. And so ultimately I got to lead that effort. And um, we did we listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 1994, and I became president of it um, in part because I was the guy who came up with the idea in the first place. But um, And... Uh, Ran it for a number of years in the New York Stock Exchange until we sold it to GE Capital, which was a huge finance company at the time. And uh, uh, and so I went from, you know, I was 47 years old, and I went from kind of running a company with 200, 250 people, and now I was working in a company with 350,000 people, and I was not as happy, and I wanted to do something on my own. And so you get to that point in your life where you decide to take the entrepreneurial jump, and that was my time. And um, uh, and so I uh, co-founded a new company, and we took that on the New York Stock Exchange, and uh, that was very successful. And later on, I would start a third company um, and, uh, and and ran that company for 10 years and then stepped down from that at the end of 21. So um, how did I become successful as basically starting companies on the, and then listing them on the New York Stock Exchange. And I did it. Uh, I listed three of them and I, two, I founded two of them and, uh, and all three of them were in very similar lines of business. And so what was number two and number three? What were they also in real estate? How? Well, um, when we started the second one, we started branching out. So we decided that fast food restaurants wasn't enough and we were, um, uh, broadening our categories. So we got into, yeah, call centers, data centers, um, uh, manufacturing establishments. We got into a lot of different kinds of real estate. Um, and, uh, 
listed on the exchange and, and sold that to some Australian guys later on. And the third company, um, I decided that, uh, you know, the thing I wanted to focus on was just real estate that made money for people. So I focused on profit centers. Um, so if your real estate had a T&L hook to it, then I was really interested. And, um, and so we did nothing but that stuff. So we did fast food restaurants, veterinary clinics, uh, fitness clubs, uh, auto parts stores, uh, you name it. I mean, anything, it could have been manufacturing service or retail, but if it made money at the asset level, and if we could get a, a unit level profit and loss statement, if we could have you give us that on a quarterly basis, then we were all on board to do that. And so we uh, ended up doing, uh, in my tenure, we did about $10 billion worth of that type of finance. All right. So Chris, the way I hear the story is, is that somewhere in your early forties before that 47 acquisition, when you were 47 years old is when your career went rocket ship and differentiated from all of the other fraternity brothers and all of the other 25, 27 year old bankers. Is that sort of a fair statement? Yeah, although you're building up to this stuff. I mean, uh, I spent uh, my career understanding how businesses really worked and, uh, and putting myself in a position where I could think strategically. And, uh, and so that positioned me for a spot in leadership. And uh, so ultimately, when uh, the opportunity presented itself, uh, luck is where opportunity meets preparedness. And, uh, uh, and I'm trying to think if that was Cicero who said that or said it was great who said that, but it's true. And so I was, uh, I was lucky in the sense that I, I had an opportunity, I saw it, and I was prepared to take it. All right. So what is that the differentiator right there? You were looking, being prepared, and then willing to leap that sets you apart from the other bankers who are still in the banking world for the 38th year and they've been through nine acquisitions now and they really don't know what the name of the bank they work for anymore is. Yeah. And, and you also have to have, uh, uh, the ability to pull it off. So when you're in my case, if you're raising money to start a new company, it takes a lot of money to start these kinds of companies. So you've got to <clears throat> have relationships with bankers you have to know some investors, for example. Um, uh, and the fact that I was successful at the first company and our, and our, and our shareholders did well um, gave me a track record that I could play with. I mean, I could be, it's easier to be an entrepreneur if you can point to something you've done and say, oh, I have a track record of this. You can trust me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of your money. I'm going to give you a nice return. And so... Uh, we did our second company and then we did our, our third company on the backs of that. And, and every one of those companies pro provided investors with a sort of a mid double digit rate of return. And I never lost money for anybody. And I outperformed the broader REIT benchmarks and, and we outperformed the long run uh, returns for the S and P 500. So, I mean, that's, that's how I was able to do it. I mean, I was able to do it because I had enough credibility to uh, have done it multiple times. And if we were to drop you into a different industry now, how do you think that would impact? Well, you know, the answer is that I would have a Rolodex of investors I could go after 
the story, if it's a very new story, uh, would be uh, present, presented an added challenge because people would sit there and say, well, do you have the skill sets to be able to run this kind of company? And uh, uh, so some of your listeners are entrepreneurs who've been in all kinds of different businesses. Um, and my business partner for many years was one of those kinds of people. He had been in all kinds of different businesses. Um, and uh, But today, when you're looking at starting companies, people have a tendency to want to make sure that there's some expertise there. And, uh, and they're not going to take a flyer unless you have people that have a leadership team in place that has a lot of experience to be able to execute the business plan uh, that's being presented to investors. And, uh, uh, and so in my case, I presented them with a fairly similar business plan, not once, but three times. And, um, and I had credibility to be able to execute that. And, uh, and I was an expert in, and I became an expert in doing that. And uh, uh, if I were in a different business, it would be more of a challenge. Were you, I think you were around GE when Jack Welch was still there? Not only was I around, we were the last company that Jack bought. Interesting. Uh, so Jack wanted to, he wanted to close out his career buying Honeywell, uh, which if uh, you're a GE historian, you might remember that. But, but uh, uh, our company was the last company he bought. And how did you two get along? Oh, uh, we got along fine. I mean, uh, I've only met him a couple times, though. I mean, Jack was layers up. Uh, you know, obviously, he was much, so much higher uh, than uh, I was, but uh, uh, you know, GE was a, an absolutely enormous company, and we were just one of many, many companies that GE had. And um, and that was one of the things that, for me, I wanted to work for a smaller company where I could see my results and what I contributed, and I could see that in the share price, and I could see that in the returns. And if you're working buried down somewhere deep in a company like GE Capital, it's really hard to see. Uh, the impact of what you do individually to that share price, to a share price of something like GE, and then to the income per share that GE can generate. Um, and so I wanted to be able to uh, jettison that and uh, work for a company. I was willing to make less money uh, and run a company than make more money and stay at GE. And what do you think is sort of that thing you want your 18 year old son to know about business, the thing, the, the three or four most important things that you just feel like you have to pass on. For me, I just want my kids to understand that entrepreneurship, they don't have to have an original idea. Just go copy somebody else and don't risk a bunch of money, you know, test it out kind of small and you know, you can be passionate for a lot of things. Maybe your family is your number one passion and that's why you're an entrepreneur. And you just alluded to how important right. it was for you to be at a smaller company. I don't think Jack's, what, what, what were Jack's top lieutenants called? There was a name for it, a special name for it. Wasn't there his Rangers or something, whatever. Those people never saw their family. And so, you know, you don't have to love what you're selling. Just sell something. And anyway, that's sort of my take. What is it you want your kid to understand? Well, first of all, starting a business is just hugely gratifying. I mean, life is, is about making a difference. And, uh, or at least, I, I mean, I, to me, one of the universal things that people want to do is make a difference in the lives of other people. And, and uh, 
uh, and, and be positive influence on other people and to, uh, um, and to do that, you know, there's, there's no, almost no better way than to start a company. It's, it's a great way to be able to make a positive difference for so many people. And, um, you don't have to have a new idea. Like you said, you don't have to have the best business model. Um, uh, so our company was not, a, it didn't have the perfect business model. Um, but, uh, uh, but you can still be very successful doing this, both personally and professionally, um, in, in doing this. And, uh, and of course, life is pretty short. And, and uh, you know, one of my bucket list things was I always wanted to start a company. And uh, I didn't want to sit there and look back at my career and say, you know, I could have started a company, but I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't, take, that, I didn't take that leap. And um, so I really wanted to try to take the leap. And, um, and when you're starting a company, people think, well, this is risky, you know. Um, well, if you know what you're doing, it's a lot less risky. <laughs> so, uh, if you really understand the business and you've got a, a pretty good game plan, you can really take a lot of the risk out of it. And, uh, you know, I, the last company I started, I think I spent, you know, $20,000 of my personal money starting the company. Uh, and then we raised, uh, I raised half a billion dollars from people to, to start it and back us. And we were open for business in five or six months. I mean, uh, and, you know, so there wasn't a lot of risk to me being able to get that done. And, um, that's one of the best ratios uh, I've fun. ever heard, Chris, 20,000 <laughs> and a billion. Uh, <laughs> that's the definition of OPM yeah, well, right there. I've ever heard. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, you have to use a lot of OPM when you're doing, uh, real estate because it's so expensive. I mean, uh, you know, you just buy a single fast food restaurant, you could be out a couple million bucks doing that. So, um, uh, so there's no way that uh, an individual could really start a company like what we've been able to do. And uh, the last company I did amassed by the time I had left about $10 billion of real estate. Um, that's a significant amount of money. And, and to do that, we raised uh, uh, about $6 billion in equity. I mean, uh, and uh, so we were basically 60% uh, equitized and 40% was, was debt. What do you think about the current state of corporate real estate? Uh, looks about everywhere you see an article about someone returning a building back to the lenders or a deal that fell mm -hmm. in Atlanta here, a deal just fell through because they couldn't get financing at the, at that sales price. The, the banks basically came back and said, the building's not, not even worth that. And you thought you were getting it at a discount. Right. What are your thoughts on the marketplace? Right. Well, I'm a, I'm a finance guy. So I, I get involved in real estate from the finance perspective. So I'm looking for tenants that want to occupy real estate. They want to be there for a long time. And what they choose is to have a landlord rather than a banker. Um, and so I've been convincing people that, uh, and in fact, and even in the book I wrote, uh, I would say that if you're running a business and you have to have real estate to run that business, by and large, you're better off not owning it. You're better off finding companies like our former company, my former company, to rent it from. And uh, so I love that part of the real estate market. If, if you're talking about real estate where it's rented on a daily basis or a yearly basis, um, uh, office space being uh, a good spot, um, there are real issues with it. You know that. And you can see in Atlanta where people are handing back keys on certain uh, uh, very large, very expensive uh, buildings and you've got vacancy rates that are enormous because people are finding they can work from home. And, uh, uh, and, uh, I'm today an example personally of that. I do a lot of work 
<laughs> out of my home and not in my home. And, uh, uh, and so the office space market is forever changed and, uh, it's going to be a big adjustment over the next few years. Uh, shopping malls have also been hit. Um, but you know, other, other pieces of real estate, it's done just fine. I mean, uh, industrial real estate has been doing great. Uh, single family residential has been doing fine. Multifamily has been doing fine. So there are just a certain sectors where, uh, the supply and demand equation has really shifted and, uh, and the office space is, uh, probably a push and for that. It looks like Burger King is a loser. You know, they've lost the burger wars very clearly. I, I see articles about franchises closing and, uh, what are your thoughts on Burger King versus McDonald's? I'm also incredibly upset with McDonald's these days. I haven't had a, I'm a, I love McDonald's. Uh, and I'm not afraid to admit it. And half the meals you get there these days are, are not edible. Uh, you throw them out as soon as you get them. And I'm serious. Uh, what are your thoughts as the owner of 4,000 million franchises of these? What are your thoughts on the franchise world? Well, I love franchising as a business. I mean, it's an amazing business and it can really, uh, make people a lot of income and you don't have to look farther than Chick-fil-A, which is based in your town, uh, to know that, uh, uh, this is, that's one family that's on the Forbes 400 on, on franchising restaurants. And it's, uh, amazing. Another one's in and out burger, which is in California. Um, but they're always in the restaurant business. They're always winners and losers. And, um, and one of the things, if you're a landlord, like I was, or if you're an investor, you got to diversify. You cannot put all your eggs in one basket. And, uh, and so I've been around long enough to see tons of Taco Bell franchisees go bankrupt. I've seen, uh, this is, this is not Burger King's first rodeo into having bankrupt franchisees. They, Burger King's been there before. Um, other restaurant chains have had plenty of issues, whether it's Hardee's or Arby's or, you know, you name it. Um, and, uh, so as a landlord, you want to diversify. And the other thing is that, um, and, and one of the reasons I like profit centers so much is because, a lot of times when people file for bankruptcy, um, they keep all their stores that are making money and they shut down the stores that are losing money. And so if your stores are making money and your landlord, you know they're making money because the tenant gives you unilevel financial statements, then you're going to be in a, a pretty good spot. You don't have a whole lot to worry about. And uh, so uh, that's what I always tend to focus on as a landlord. All right. The six levers in the book, the six different controls that we business uh, people have over our business, sales, investment, profit margin, cost of money, or I mean the, the cost of your investors, the amount funded outside, walk us through these and give us a quick recap of the equation, please. Okay, so I, I want to sort of make this as simple as I can for, for the readers. Um, and and the, there's six variables, but three of them are probably the most important. Um, and and that, that's sales and the amount you're going to invest in your business. Uh, so sales, business investment, and operating profit margin. And those three numbers alone, if that's all you know, that's going to give you a rate of return on your business that's sort of an unlevered rate of return, you know, so without debt, you know, without debt limits. And the very best business models ever conceived, ever made by man, all have pretty nice unlevered rates of return. 
And, and of course, when, you, when you're making an unlevered rate of return, it's got to be more than you could borrow money at, right? So the returns for equity investors should be more than the returns that debt guys would make. If they're not, of course, you can't borrow money. I mean, if you have a return that's super low, uh, you, you can't even borrow money. So it's <laughs> not even an issue. Um, but you start off with the, with the uh, unlevered rate of return, and then you fold in the, the capital stack or the, the debt equity mix. So you're focusing on our OPM and where that OPM is coming from and how much it costs. Uh, and that gets you kind of most of the way through the equation in terms of getting return on equity. And the, the secret sauce here is that when people are making businesses and you're thinking about what kind of business you want to be in, you got to focus on these six things because um, uh, when you're designing a business, that's what's going to deliver equity returns for investors. And the higher the equity return is, the more money you're going to make. Uh, and, uh, and the better your business is going to be. And that's the kind of way you get into, uh, be an EOI entrepreneur of the year kind of stuff where you have returns. They're high enough where, uh, shareholders are doing well. And by the way, the shareholders are doing well. Now the employees are doing well because they have lots of, uh, career options and lots of growth in front of them. Uh, the communities are doing well. All your suppliers are doing great. Uh, but. You know, the number one person you're always starting your business with is the customer, and the number two, right behind that, is the shareholder. And uh, and so the six uh, levers all relate to trying to get that shareholder the best return they can get. And what's the best ROI that you can brag about? Where? Okay. Well, uh, just give you an idea. This is this is kind of fun. So I I did an article not too long ago. And I compared the company I ran to Apple Computer. Uh, Apple just pierced the $3 trillion value mark. So Apple is the most valuable company in the world. Um, and, uh, and so what kind of return do they generate? You know, um, and so it, it turns out that Apple's worth about 10 times more than it costs to make. You know, so if, you, if you're looking at what is that equity, what the equity cost, like if, looking at all the shareholder money that went into Apple, plus all the money that Apple's reinvested over the years, you know, uh, that has a cost to it. And the value that Apple's trading at, that three trillion dollars number is about 10 times more than what the equity cost to put it. Um, the company I created, it, it was worth about one and a half times what it cost to put in. So my equity multiplier wasn't as good as Apple's by a long shot. And our company was a lot smaller, but that, that extra, you know, that one and a half turns meant that I created for our, for our shareholders, $3 billion in value out of thin air. I mean, uh, that extra half a turn above one where you're creating the value for my, for my shareholders, that was $3 billion. So we were trading at a stock price of, let's say $9 billion. And so three of that $9 billion was value that was created out of thin air. And, uh, and so if I can create, you know, $3 billion in, in value, then some of that's going to go to me and some of that's going to go to my management team. And that's how people get rich. And uh, so, you know, you don't need to be Apple Computer to create a very nice company that's going to be um, really interesting from an economic value perspective. If you were to go back to college today, would you still get a fine arts degree? How frequently <laughs> yeah, do you I use would. your European history degree? You know, more than you think, because 
when uh, when people major in finance, uh, there's always a right answer in finance for the most part. But if you're if you've ever been in business and you've started a lot of businesses, the world's not always perfect. So the world has a lot of ambiguity, a lot of uh, imperfections to it, and uh, and so if you study things like economics or finance or philosophy, um, you get acclimated to there being no right answer sometimes and, uh, and dealing with things that don't make sense. And the other thing you get good at is writing and you get good at explaining things to people and you get good at convincing other people of an argument. And uh, all those things are just really super important skills. If you're going to try to raise money from people, if you're going to raise uh, lots of money from people to start a new business, it really helps to be able to uh, have solid presentation skills and unfortunately, in business school, uh, that's not sometimes where you get it. You know, so a lot of times it's uh, the, the fine arts or liberal arts degrees. And sometimes I'll tell my uh, my, my students that, I, that I'm talking to in finance classes that they might spend some time in a Shakespeare class or something like that because it actually can help them be a better business person. Chris, how do we find out more? Get a copy of the book. Yeah, well, my website is www.thevalueequation.com, and uh, uh, I'm obviously on LinkedIn, so you can find my profile on LinkedIn. Happy to talk to any of your listeners, and I respond uh, to my LinkedIn profile. And uh, one more thing is that I would really appreciate it if your investor, if your listeners could uh, not only buy the book, but also just make uh, some nice comments on Amazon or other uh, sites, because the comments really do help authors a lot. And it would be very helpful to me. So, so I'd appreciate that. And, and thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we will be right back. We are back in again. Thank you so much for being with us. Very excited to introduce another great entrepreneur. Please welcome Bob Muglia to the show. He is author of a new book called The Datapreneurs, The Promise of AI and the Creators Building Our Future. So I can't wait to get his take on all of the things going on. He's had a very successful career in the data technology business as an investor and as an executive. And he's the former CEO of Snowflake and past president of Microsoft Server Division. Bob, welcome. How are you doing? Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Very impressive career. Uh, I'd love to have, I hope we have some time to get into it. Where are you on the AI spectrum? Are they going to terminate us or is it the greatest thing ever? And there's absolutely no threat. Well, I, I would say I'm an optimist. Let me just start by saying I'm definitely an optimist. I, my entire career, I've spent helping companies and organizations define the products that get built. And, and AI is another product. I mean, essentially, these are, uh, these are technologies created by people. Uh, they're here to serve us for sure and to do things for us. And I'm very optimistic about that. In the long run, you know, they are, they are, are going to have a huge impact on our lives. Uh, you know, it will not all be positive for everyone. I mean, there will be disruptions. And, and, and fortunately, you know, whenever we have technological disruptions, it can negatively impact some people. In the end, I think there'll be more opportunities for people. And, and as a general, our society will improve in the lives of every lives. It will help to improve the lives of everyone. But it will not be without some costs along the way and some challenges. And those are very real. And those are, you know, they're something to very much focus on and be concerned about. But it's not going to kill us. 
you know, I, I don't believe it's going to kill us. I do believe, I, I do believe that the technology is going to evolve where the intelligence, you know, which we've now, for the first time in the history of digital computers, we have the ability to create what I would call intelligent machines, have machines that have the characteristics of human intelligence that, that you know, we all view, have, have previously viewed as somewhat unique to us. Now we're seeing many of these characteristics evolving in the computers themselves. They will continue to get smarter. Uh, eventually, they'll be as smart as, as we are. And ultimately, I think they will get smarter than we are. And, and they will provide an opportunity to move technology along faster. It, it is going to be a fairly wild ride, I think. We're going to see, we have seen in my lifetime, a dramatic speed increase in how, how fast technology progresses. If you look at the 1970s or the 1980s and how fast progress was happening and you compare that to like the last 10 years we're going much faster now than we were 30 40 years ago it's going to continue to get faster and faster and that's going to be very very interesting do i think we're going to create machines that will end humanity no i don't i don't believe that that that's going to happen it has been well thought about in many science fiction films and, and books i think terminator did a a fairly outstanding job of defining the downside of artificial intelligence technology. The thing to realize, though, is, is that, again, we are creating these machines. We can imbue in them the characteristics that we would like them to see. It's about the values we place, that the values we have as individuals and what we create, what we pass on to the machines we create. And I don't believe we're going to be dumb enough to build something that will kill us all. Just like we've managed to, you know, in my entire life, I've lived under the gauntlet of a potential nuclear war. You know, I grew up in the 1960s and it seemed very present back then. It seems somewhat present now as a potential problem. And yet we've managed to survive since World War II without, you know, without destroying people and having nuclear explosions. We can do the same with artificial intelligence. Excellent, Bob. Tons to unpack there. One of the things you said makes me wonder if they're going to get smarter than us. Is there going to be a situation where one's better than the other at creativity, for example, and we have a worm versus GPT competition for best screenplay? Are they going to be able Maybe. to write screenplays that actually are good movies? Well, I'm not sure all the movies that people write are good movies. So well, they should eliminate that. They should edit that out. They should be able to take all of the flops and say, okay, this is not what we do. You know, you know it'll be interesting to see how well these things can, can, can creatively build things that, that, that people want to watch. I'm not sure. Those are the sorts of areas where I think people will always have some advantages because we will know who we are. However, I would, I would say that, that the good news is, is that uh, it does look like there are going to be a lot of these bots out there. Uh, I was worried when we saw the emergence of ChatGPT around Christmas time and everybody was talking about how many hundreds of millions of dollars it cost to build it. That, that creating these artificial intelligence uh, models was going to be only the large companies were going to be able to do it, and we'd only have a few of them. And I think that would be very unfortunate if there were only half a dozen uh, large language models that we could interact with. What's happened since then... You remember the has, prediction that there's only room for like five computers in America? Absolutely. Look at how wrong that was. Uh, I'm going to predict that we're going to see a similar explosion of large language models it's very, very easy to create these now. Even today, you can, the cost of building them, 
even from scratch, has dropped dramatically since since Christmas. Uh, the open source community is moving at lightning speed. Um, our friends at Meta have done a good job of helping to ignite this, and they most recently just took a very, very competitive large language model called Llama 2 and completely open sourced it. The whole thing is open source. It's available for anyone to work with. It's just a tremendous boon to the industry. And, and I think we're going to see a lot of different bots doing a lot of different things. You know, right now we're using these, these things to answer questions and to help facilitate the writing of like computer code. Uh, very soon, these answer bots are going to become action bots where they'll do things on our behalf. Like you'll be able to say, you know, can you, can you see if there's a table for four at my favorite Italian restaurant on, on Friday night at 7.30 and it'll check on availability to tell you, you know, when, when the table is available and it'll book it for you. Those sorts of things are going to become very real in the next few years. And that would be nice. It would be nice. I look forward personally to my calendar bot. That's the one I want. The one that looks through all my emails and, and tells me what I need to focus on in terms of scheduling meetings. That's the one that I'd like to have. <laughs> I want the parenting bot. But daddy, that one may but be harder. I'm sorry, that one what? may take longer. That no. may take longer. <laughs> well, Parenting seems a little more complicated. You, be. you know, all I want my bot to say is shut up. <laughs> well, that you could do today. That's pretty oh, yes. easy. That's pretty easy, but I'm not sure it'll, it's, it's actually the best way to raise it, raise a child. So I have four of the things. And so, uh, <laughs> well, don't they just take care of each other? Uh, you would think yeah, to a large degree they do, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. How well, pretty goes. soon, pretty soon what we're going to start to see, and I think this will be very positive is we're going to start to see tutor bots appearing to help our kids you know, in a very personalized way, grow and work through some of the challenges they have. And I think that could be very positive because Lord knows our, our school system in the United States needs some help right now. And I'm not certain that this is the answer. I have to say, I don't, I don't come in saying this is the solution, but I know we need to do something. And this is, this I think may be part of the answer. I used to be in the summer camp space, except we taught technology at UW and Stanford and mm -hmm. MIT and Georgetown and UCLA and Emory and SMU and all over the country and Sorbonne and Cambridge and Oxford. And I, I love the idea of the bot. We need one amazing teacher who does an amazing video that 5 million kids can watch all at the same time, just like in Japan. And then your personal bot helps you get through that video. Yeah. I mean, I, that could be part of the answer. I mean, it's, it's, you know, great teachers building great material that's then available in a personalized and customized way for everyone. I mean, it sure seems like it would help help our, our, our schools, particularly inner city schools that have, you know, that are, are, are not known for producing, you know, great results. And I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have in this country. And I hope technology can be part of the solution. Did you know that in Japan, they change uniform in the entire country the same day, regardless of whether you have snow there or not? So no matter what, on March 1st, you put on your spring uniform, no matter what. Well, Japan is, you know, I, one of the things I was told many times in my many visits to Japan is Japan is, is, is different. 
And my favorite story about Japan is after they had the, the scare in the subways, you know, with the, the, the viruses or whatever it was the, that was that was put in the trash cans. Uh, they literally removed every single public trash can in the country of Japan and they never came back. <laughs> and the Japanese carry their trash home. Uh, it's kind of it, can you imagine that here? Can you just imagine how that would work culturally in the United States? Uh, absolutely fascinating all right i used to live there and work for coca-cola there bob so uh, it's a wonderful country the people are fabulous it's a fabulous country boy this is definitely different than here when you were telling the story of the trash cans my first thought was that they also got rid of them all in 24 hours yeah that's right it happened in 24 hours that's actually the other part of the story they all disappeared and they and, and they never never came back and imagine how <laughs> and long they don't that care and they the don't United care states well, if it did, we'd be covered in trash, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes. All right. Tell us about the book, The Datapreneurs, The Promise of AI, and The Creators Building Our Future. What's sort of the thesis of the book or the, the takeaway you well, want us to have? The thesis is, is that you know we're living in a world where AI is a major part of our experience or will become a major part of our experience. And although it feels like this just happened overnight, in fact, there's been a lot of work over decades through digital computers and in the data industry that have led to where we are today. And the book is a story of the people that have helped to create the world we have uh, and you know their stories and the key technical contributions they made. And it describes this arc of data innovation that has led to the generative AI that we're seeing today and in the future is going to lead to things like artificial general intelligence. So it tells that story and it, it describes the technology in a way that I think most people can understand it. It tries to take some complicated technology and make it accessible to a broader audience. And I, I think we, the goal was, is that everybody would learn something from reading the book. And, and I think it does that. So it's the datapreneurs. You can learn more about it on the datapreneurs.com and it's available anywhere you buy books. All right. And who plays you in the movie? When you wrote the book, who did you envision you start being starred as? Ryan well, Reynolds? I, you know, I never, you're the first person that's ever said it to me. And I swear to God, I've never thought of that before. I've never thought this book was never meant to have a movie associated with it. Although I have to tell you that some of the people involved and some of the things they've accomplished deserve being highlighted. I mean, that to me is the key. These are incredible technologists who have, who have worked and dedicated their lives to evolving, to, to building things that have changed the, the world around us. And so that's the story I wanted to documentary tell. Documentary on Netflix is what you narrated. <laughs> You know, the, the story is worth yeah you can the story could be a documentary that could be <laughs> that could be i'm not sure it's i'm not sure it's uh you know it's it's not a it's not a classic it's certainly not a uh you know an action thriller or anything like that all right so you want the technology to become more understandable is the first one of those the relational revolution yeah it starts with it Please starts explain with, that to us so what do you want us to know about that technology so the technology, you know, the relational technology, relational SQL databases are the the, the Can you data explain storage. What that means first? Yeah. Like so the, a database, a database is, is a, a computer system that stores information, and a relational is a mathematical science that was developed by IBM in the late 1960s, early 1970s that 
provided the fundamental concepts for database that allows us to store all the business data that are used in systems today. So when you book an airline ticket or you any really anything you do, you buy something from a store, all of that information is stored ultimately in a SQL database somewhere. And this, the early part, the, the early part of the book talks about that revolution as it was occurring in the 1980s and the 1990s, and how it has brought technology to it's just about everyone in the world go back to 1985 1990 almost every small business kept all their books everything pencil and paper you'd walk into a you know your local your local bookstore or your or, or your your local paper shop and, and everything was done everything all everything was done pencil and paper that's not true anymore and it was these technologies that have enabled the automation of dentists offices and companies of all sizes really all right and then you move on to talking about data stacks. Yeah, so we, you know, we have this. We, today we have this, the, this something called a modern data stack, which is being used by by companies around the world. It's a set of cloud services that use these SQL database technologies to enable people to work with information in, across their company and in fact from other organizations it lets you bring data together from everywhere and answer the questions that are relevant to your business and again this is done using a modern sql data warehouse um, which is which is a, a you know a database program that runs within these large cloud environments like Microsoft or Amazon or Google and companies like Snowflake Databricks as well as the cloud companies of the vendors that provide this all right, and how does that impact me? Well, it impacts you because these are the technologies that everybody is using to answer questions to help them run their business. It's a data-centric world. Every part of our lives these days, when we do almost anything we do, we are leaving a digital footprint behind. That information is used by many, many companies uh, to, to sell to us, to provide better services for us, to ensure, for example, that our our phone systems are working, our power is working, our internet is up. All of that is based on data that's collected all the time. And with this, if this data is really the fuel that keeps modern business going. And it's these products that are enabling companies to work with this information. I mean, you literally couldn't do anything today without this data. I mean, literally nothing could, the whole world would fall. But think about the, the, de you know, the problems the airline industries are having. This is, you know, with scheduling pilots and stuff. These are systems not keeping up with the data. And it's just, it's and just Southwest shows that the still world keeps one, going. Right? You know, Southwest, I, you know, I remember when Southwest was, was always the most, the best airline to, from a schedule perspective and things. And somehow they allowed their technology to fall behind. And that's what happens. The demands get higher. And unless you keep up, you know, you're, you're bypassed by competitors. So part three of your book, you talk about the new data technologies. What are you referring to there? Well, it's all about models. I mean, the world is moving to a model-based world. And that, you know, when we talk about machine learning, these large language models, those are models. You know, what is a model? A model is a, you know, is a, is a, a creation that, that represents something that we want to happen. So if you look back in time, uh, the, in the Renaissance, the great Renaissance artists did models of their masterpieces before they actually sculpted them or painted them. And if you build a building today, no one would build a building today without doing an architectural drawing. That's a model. Whenever we build any kind of modern device, whether it's a jet airplane 
or you know an internet router those things are all designed in cad systems and they're all modeled well with the world of artificial intelligence all of those, those are statistical models and more and more of business is being driven by models and those models are essentially data and information that you can analyze and build conclusions on and then from that take action and make decisions what's happening is decisions inside business were always made by people now more and more actions are being taken decisions are being made that are driven by software models and so those models have to be based on accurate data and the systems to support all of that is what's what is enabling this new world that we have with artificial intelligence everything is built on a big infrastructure that that has been created over decades all right. Are you Zuckerberg or Elon Musk in the big brawl? Who do you think's the the winner there? Well, in the cage match, I'm, I would bet for Zuckerberg because he's been training for a long time. In the in the world around us, I hope they both win in some senses because I want to see lots of winners. I think it's great that that uh, Meta and Zuckerberg just released the Slama model to the open source community. I think that's a really great thing, and I'm pleased to see Elon investing a billion dollars in the supercomputer at Tesla. And good Lord knows what he's going to do at Twitter. And I think again, the more of these things we create, the bigger the diversity of thought, the values, the diversity of values. I think that's a good thing. You may agree or disagree with elon's values but i think it's good that we have a lot of these things out with values that represent the different perspectives of people because lord knows we're not the same at the very beginning you talked about ai having certain opportunities that came with it we don't hear about that all we hear about is the jobs being lost what are the opportunities that you see coming well, first of all, you know, for startups, my gosh, there's never been more opportunities for people to build solutions. Uh, what's incredible about AI is it allows you to take expertise that exists in any given domain and essentially encapsulate that in some kind of AI program. You know, what I, the way I think about this is, is if you are a domain expert in something, if you understand something about medical technology, you understand something about finance, you understand something about manufacturing process, whatever it is your basis of, of knowledge is, you can now take and effectively bottle that knowledge inside an application with an AI system, a, a language model, uh, an AI model underneath it. You can take the, the skill sets that you have and begin to imbue these into software with intelligence associated with it that we never had before. So the opportunity to build new application solutions is almost limitless. AI is going to affect every application, everything people do, and it's really a new, new opportunity. The incumbents will add on to what they're doing. You know, Microsoft, Salesforce, et cetera, they'll all add AI things on, but there's a tremendous opportunity to build bespoke systems from scratch. Bespoke. That word is bespoke. Just, it seems like a lot of people are using that word recently. I thought it was only for British design suits. You know, it may be. I, it seemed like a good word, though, didn't it? <laughs> uh, totally. I am talking about how good the word is. You know, I mean, it's so exciting. See, that's, it's but like you can have a British whip, design. So you can take your expertise. You can take your expertise in British design suits and incorporate that into an AI system. How about that? Well, that would be the dumbest system of all time. But, uh, <laughs> well, maybe not your expertise. Yes, maybe someone else's. Somewhat. 
One, uh, one of my favorite little stories, Bob, is I was traveling and got a text alert or something saying that my credit card was accused of fraud. I needed to call mm -hmm. Amex immediately. And I called and said, what's the problem? And they said, well, yesterday you, you bought $10,000 worth of clothes. And I was like, yes, I actually did that. And they were for like, the first time in a while, <laughs> sir, in 12 years, you've never bought clothes before. I was like, the fact that I was in Uruguay didn't upset you. No, that didn't upset us at all. The fact that you bought clothes did. So, well, some algorithm tripped on that one and it yes. knew that you hadn't bought clothes in a really long time, which meant that it had some data, didn't that? Bob, how do we find out more? Follow you online, get a copy of the datapreneurs, the promise of AI and the creators building our future. Uh, just you can look at it online at thedatapreneurs.com and uh, let's say buy the book anywhere. And, and it's just a really great time for entrepreneurs and people to be doing and building new things because the opportunities have never been greater. And how do you define the snowflake today? Not your business, but the, the snowflake that you're referring to. The company? Yes. There's a company called Snowflake. Yeah, they're you know they're in this data warehousing business, and they're now you know they become a, a strong leader in that business. Yes, they yes, yes. But how does that refer to the cultural definition or denotation, to use another grown-up word, of Snowflake? What were you trying to get to when you said Snowflake is the name of our company? Well, first of all, it's important. A, I didn't name it. Let me start by saying that our, my, our founders, Benoit and Terry, named the company. B, when they named it Snowflake, the 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 term, the way the term is used today, um, in the political sense, really wasn't used that way. That emerged a little bit later because this was like 2012 where they named it. And I don't think the term was used then. They really referred to it the fact that 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 you you could build all kinds of data models with Snowflake, and it's sort of like snow. That's where everyone is different. And they saw that Snowflake came from the clouds. I mean, they were they were literally skiers. They they named it Snowflake up at, at North Star in Tahoe when they were skiing on the mountain. That's where the name <laughs> came from. <laughs> There's a good story. Bob, yep, thank well, you so much for being with us. Great stuff. It was great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. We are out of time, but back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Bye now. <laughs>